Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, you're back in the land of the bookcase. I'm Charles Gibson. Oh my God, he makes it sound so dire. Like, you know, that's not, you know, that's like doomed, welcome doomed mortals. Well, I, sh- uh, I should have done that when we were doing the horror series. You I just, you know. <laughs> It's such an ominous beginning. Hi, I'm Kate Gibson, and you are more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> to bring a little sanity back to yeah, the, exactly. back to our effort. <laughs> um, we normally, if you've been listening to the podcast week by week, and I hope you have, <laughs> we have normally been talking to writers of fiction with an occasional detour into the land of nonfiction. But our bar is pretty high, I think. But... Sometimes we find a book of nonfiction that we say we really should do this. In June, a book came out called Wonder Drug, which is written by Jennifer Vanderbess. And our attention was drawn to it uh, when we had the pleasure of talking to Anna Quinlan for a piece that we were doing on Good Morning America. And Anna said, have you read The Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims? If you remember thalidomide, um, (laughs) you're old. Uh, it was a drug that. <laughs> it that, was a that drug. That was a great setup and a sad punchline. <laughs> if you remember thalidomide, guess what? You're old. It came on the market in. Well, it, fi- it actually officially never came on the market in the mm. United States, mm-hmm. but it was widely disseminated by the drug company that was pushing it in the United States, and it resulted in the deformity of hundreds of kids. It had dire effects on unborn children. Many of them were born with flippers for arms, seal arms, directly just, you know, half of the arm missing. Many of them were born without toes or without hands at all or deformed legs. It was a pernicious drug. And yet it got out in the market. It is a story, wonder drug of greed, of bureaucratic incompetence. You said to me, I've read this, you should read it. And I said to you, I don't want to read it. It was hard for me to get pregnant. It was hard for me to have kids. So so reading stories about tragic birth is not easy for me to do. And I read it and you said, but I'm not sure if we'll do it. And I'm not sure how we do it. And I, but it's so brilliantly reported. It's such great journalism. I feel like you should read it. So I read it and I had finished not too long ago, uh, Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. And I right. called up my father right after I'd read it. And I said, we have to do this because I think it has particular relevancy right now. Because as much as I think we like to sort of shower ourselves with praise, we avoided thalidomide. It was never approved by the FDA. You know, John F. Kennedy signed this heroic act for the FDA with Francis Kelsey in the background. And we are very comfortable with that narrative. And we're very comfortable with the fact that no private industry is going to pull the wool over our eyes. Well, that's what's happened with opioids. And that's what's happened with fentanyl. And I feel like the parallels between what slipped through doctors' hands and what slipped through the market has incredible relevancy today. Kate makes a good point. Uh, Francis Kelsey was a very young doctor at uh, the FDA, and 
Uh, she saw this drug being widely disseminated in Europe, but she said, where's the proof that it's effective? Where's the proof that it's safe? I don't think that there's proper testing that's been done. And so she sort of single-handedly kept the drug from officially being on the market. But unofficially, the drug company that was trying to sell it in the United States said, well, all you doctors out there will send you the drug and you conduct informal clinical trials on it. They end-runded what Jennifer says was a, a loophole big enough to, <laughs> to drive a 747 right through it. And as a result, there were a lot of mothers who did not know what they were getting in this drug that was supposed to be for morning sickness and other things did not know that what they were getting and it harmed their kids. And for a long time, they didn't know why their kids were coming out this way. And the other thing I should mention, Jennifer Vanderbess has written a series of novels. This is her first work of nonfiction. And I think, Kate, that that's a real advantage because she writes this as a novel. It's a page turner. Mm. You really get into the story, not because, well, first of all, you're horrified by what happened. But second of all, she writes it in what could be a novel. Now, truth is often stranger than fiction. This is truth, but it is written as as a style mm. bring to fiction. Mm -hmm. Certainly. I think it is a page turner and it's a story that I think everybody should know because I think it speaks to the critical thinking we need to bring to privatized medicine. Right. Sorry, that's I'm going to get some letters for that too. But at any rate, Jennifer Vandevis research brilliantly reported Wonder Drug, the secret history of thalidomide in America and its hidden victims. Our conversation with Jennifer Vandevis. Jennifer Vandevis, it is such a delight to have you in the bookcase. Katie and I were both fascinated reading this, and this is a very worthy read, Wonder Drug, the book. Your story dates to the late 1950s and 1960s, but many people don't know what thalidomide is or how it developed as a drug and what it was for. Yeah. So coming out of World War II, that's really the birth of what we think of as the modern pharmaceutical industry. People were sensing that there were medicinal applications for lots of things, including anxiety, uh, stress, insomnia, things that previously had not been treated by a pill. So the pharmaceutical clubs at the time were sort of racing to patent and sell pills that could be taken by anyone at any time. And you have a firm in Germany that was previously manufacturing soaps and perfumes. They recognized this new market. They set a small group of people to begin researching a new drug, and they come up with thalidomide. And the angle that they're trying to use for sales is that it's the first sedative hypnotic that is non-toxic. Barbiturates were very popular at the time, as people recall, you know, in that same era, Marilyn Monroe overdosed on barbiturates, right? There was a danger to a lot of chill pills. Thalidomide was supposed to be the super safe alternative. You could take a hundred of them and they would not kill you. So the German firm, Kemi Grunenthal, gets this to market, and then they start eagerly looking for overseas partners. And within a short span of time, you have about 46 countries selling thalidomide. They say, you know, you can't kill an experimental animal with this drug. The question arose in the 1950s when Grunenthal was considering this drug, whether or not it would be safe for pregnant women and should they look into that. They decide they should. They reach out to one doctor. He doesn't get back to them. And from that, they sort of decide to drop the question. <laughs> Additionally, if you look at the early tests, they were very short term. I mean, this was a drug 
that they were positioning as an everyday pill for everybody. This was not something people were going to be prescribed to take for 10 days or even one month, right? So you look back at the testing that happened and it was for a very short span and very low dosages. So all of the information that they had before the drug came to market was extremely, extremely limited. What was the standardized testing process in Europe and in America at that time? What standards were drug companies held to in terms of what they had to prove before they released a drug? So pharmaceutical company basically had to show that they had done safety testing on it. This was standard. So by the time the drug is on the market in Germany and they find an American partner called the William S. Merrill Company, who also wants to bring it to market, the American company has to submit to the FDA piles and piles of paperwork saying that this drug has been tested for safety. So this happens by September of 1960. This very eager American firm submits an application to the FDA. Part of their argument is, well, this is already on the market in Germany. It's already on the market in other countries. A lot of the safety data that they're submitting is, in fact, from German studies. So it looked like at the time a drug that would not be held up. The FDA procedure at that time was that that paperwork would go to a medical reviewer. And absent the medical reviewer finding some specific problem with the drug, it would pretty much automatically get cleared. (laughs) The problem for the William S. Merrill Company was that they had, to their bad luck and our tremendously good luck, that this pile of paperwork lands on the desk of a very new medical reviewer at the FDA named Dr. Frances Kelsey. She is a Canadian-born pharmacologist, physician. She's just arrived in D.C. She's taken this job because her husband got a job at the NIH and she had to find a job in Washington. She's ridiculously overqualified for this position, and she's a stickler for detail. So this pile lands on her desk, and you know there's no reason for the drug firm or even her FDA bosses to think that there's going to be an issue, except that she's Frances Kelsey, and she looks at this pile of paperwork, and she immediately notices you know, what I just relayed, which is that the testing that was done on the drug was very short-term. And specifically, it became very quickly clear to her, you know, she had a degree in pharmacology, which was a relatively new science post-war, which is the study of how drugs act on the body. So what she noticed when she looked at the paperwork was that nobody who had either invented the drug, worked on the drug, actually seemed to know how it worked in the human body. And this greatly disturbed her. So she starts poking this paperwork and all sorts of things fall apart really quickly, right? They say that they've been administering it in clinical testing, which means testing in humans within the United States, using 37 physicians to do this. But if you're going to start clinical testing, it has to be proper clinical testing. You have to note how old the patient is, you know, what their weight is, their height is, what condition you gave it for, what the dosage was, how long. And she doesn't see that. What she sees are these sort of very enthusiastic summaries, you know, all patients, you know, tolerate the drug very well. These, you know, broad statements and this too rattles her. So she immediately says, I can't clear this drug, but she didn't know what problem she could name with the drug. She had not found a specific problem with the drug. It was sort of an absence of proof that the drug was safe. So she locates a woman who had worked at the FDA prior to her, who had sort of resigned in protest. And this woman says, essentially, The FDA has a problem with fast-tracking applications. I have discovered this loophole. You can declare this application incomplete and essentially stall it for a few months, and then they have to kind of restart and resubmit. 
So she does this. And then this kind of cat and mouse process with the pharmaceutical company goes on for about a year and a half. For people who may not know about this story, since it dates back, what kind of negative effects, tragic effects really, was the drug having, could the drug have, did the drug have on pregnant women? As the story goes, in December of 1956, on Christmas Day, there's a baby born to a couple where the father works at Kemi Grunenthal, and the baby girl is born without ears. This is the first documented indication that babies whose mothers took this drug early in pregnancy would be affected. From that point on, from late 1956, what you start seeing are consistently increasing reports from women who've taken the drug in the first trimester. Their babies are born with injured limbs. What most people recall who did live through this time and remember the thalidomide story finally breaking in 1962, and there were very vivid and powerful pictures of these babies, a condition called phocomelia, which sort of translates roughly to seal limbs, where what you have are hands and feet that are sort of more attached immediately to shoulders and knees. The limbs are truncated, and oftentimes the babies were missing fingers In Germany, you have doctors and pediatricians and parents who start noticing what they're describing as a sort of outbreak of phocomelia, right? They're looking at an epidemic of babies that are being born with this condition, and they don't know what's causing it. People at that time are reaching out to Kemi Grunenthal to say, well, this woman took this drug and her baby was born injured, and we think there's a connection. And the drug firm basically says that's not possible. And they consistently say that's not possible. What's interesting to note is that there was actually, so the the well-known condition that thalidomide causes is the effect on pregnant women. Before that became known, thalidomide actually causes another serious health problem, which is peripheral neuritis. Before news broke about babies whose mothers had taken the drug in the first trimester, Kemi Grunenthal was also receiving reports that elderly patients who'd been taking the drug long-term were starting to lose sensation in their hands and feet and often had very painful tingling, including some of the doctors who were giving the drug out to their patients and taking it themselves because they believed it to be super safe. Neither Kemi Grunenthal nor the American firms ever hit pause themselves to say, wait a second, we need to go back and do more research before we continue to sort of dispense this drug. They were cornered into taking it off the market. So Merrill essentially finds out that bad things are happening in Europe. What do they do, if anything? Uh, do they ignore it? Do they say, boy, we need to test this further? What was Merrill's reaction to what was starting to be found out in Europe as they were trying to get FDA approval? Yeah. So they've got their application sitting with the FDA since you know September 1960. Around like Thanksgiving 1961, they get a call from their counterparts in Germany, Kemi Grunenthal, and Grunenthal says, we've got reports here that the drug could be linked to this condition, phocomelia, severe physical birth defects. We are removing it from the market. Now, they did not do that willingly. You know, a physician and a father and many people had sort of pressured them into the move, but they do relay this information to Merrill in the United States. This is the wild and crazy and unbelievable part of the story. At that point in time, Merrill has an active FDA application. They do not withdraw it. That doesn't happen until about four months later. They kind of keep it with the FDA, like, let's cross our fingers and just hope that this isn't really a problem. They also notify a very, very small number of the physicians to whom they dispensed the drug. At that point in time, this drug had 
by their count, gone to over 1,200 physicians around the United States to be dispensed to patients who did not know they were receiving an experimental drug. Those doctors, in turn, have been giving it out to their colleagues. So we're saying, like, by the time Germany recalls the drug from the market, probably well over 2,000 American doctors are handing out the drug. Since there hadn't been approval in the United States, since the FDA hadn't signed off on the drug, was that legal for them to be shipping it out to doctors and telling them to give it to patients? I think a Senator Munt eventually referred to this as a loophole that you could drive, you know, a truck of hay through. (laughs) (laughs) The law stated that prior to FDA approval, you could begin clinical testing in humans. And that sounds proper because obviously you need some clinical data in order to persuade the FDA that the drug is safe. What Merrill had done was recognize that there was no numerical limit to how many clinical trials could be commenced. So I think from their point of view, they thought this was going to be a very popular drug. They assumed the FDA clearance would come quickly, and they kind of wanted to prime the pump and get it out there. So your question becomes the key question that the FDA has to address after it becomes clear. So when they submitted their application, they told the FDA 37 doctors were testing it. In about two years, the FDA realizes that it had gone to well over a thousand doctors. And they eventually decide that that was a violation of the law, that it was not in any way what the purpose of the law was. And that because those doctors specifically had not actually kept any reports, they were not running clinical trials. They were not reporting on the patients on any details that would fall under that category. So the FDA eventually asked the Department of Justice to press charges, criminal charges against Merrill for violating the law on that part. But Jennifer, and correct me if I'm wrong, September of 1964, the Department of Justice concluded, and I want to quote here because I want to get it right, the criminal prosecution was neither warranted nor desirable. So did this put the law behind the words clinical trial? And did it get any information to the patients involved in the trials? The issue of patient consent becomes very important in the conversation. After that, drug firms have to tell the FDA specifically what their clinical trials are, right? You, you can't just say, oh, clinical trials, we'll get back to you. I mean, what had happened additionally, the FDA didn't even know, and it's an interesting piece of the story, that another drug firm, SmithKline and French, had also been running clinical trials on thalidomide before Merrill got interested. They, interestingly, after about nine months, <laughs> which is a curious <laughs> window of time, <laughs> declare that they don't think the drug is effective, which is really mysterious because bear in mind, over 46 countries are selling this drug. No one's, no one's brought efficacy up as a problem with thalidomide. That's not, and by the way, It didn't even have to be effective to sell it, right? That was not a part of the law at the time. You could sell anything you wanted and call it whatever, ostensibly as long as it wasn't harming people. But the FDA doesn't find out until after this, you know, thalidomide becomes known, you know, as a drug that harms babies, you know, in utero. What's really notable about what Merrill did is that they enlisted their drug salesmen, who at the time were called detail men. It wasn't just the number of doctors that they recruited. It was the way that they did it. They sent salesmen out to kind of sweet talk all these doctors in hospitals, many of whom they'd never met. And it was this sort of promotional blitz. And 
you know, they walk into these hospitals, they say, we've got the safest thing since water, right? Don't worry about barbiturates anymore. We're going to replace <laughs> that, right? And these doctors say, okay, sure, I'll, you know, I'll do a clinical trial. Merrill sort of not even winkingly says, don't worry, it's not a real clinical trial. We've already done that. Don't worry about data. These doctors think that they've got a wonderful product on hand. They stash it in the hospital pharmacy. They tell their colleagues about it. And there it sits. So to your question about the amount, you know, I looked at how the numbers in the FDA records, this was a huge part of the research of this project, was going back into the FDA records and trying to figure out how this story had been for so long written as this great FDA success story <laughs> and actually had, you know, it was in some ways a great sort of FDA tragedy in the way that they followed up on it. I would say about 5 million doses of thalidomide went around the country sort of unaccounted for, that they don't know who got it from what doctor, you know, tens of thousands of patients, well over a thousand pregnant women. And because of the way that it played out, this is like the, the key part of the story is because the FDA didn't get a handle on what this drug firm had done until a little bit after the story had broken. And, you know, there's a really interesting media angle to this story, which is that the media loved the story that broke in the summer of 1962, which is that the amazing Frances Kelsey had officially kept thalidomide off the American market. And she did do that. And she saved many lives, you know, by doing that. But there was a really, really, really big footnote to that story that never got reported and just wasn't as satisfying, as interesting as the original narrative, which is that the FDA eventually found out that thousands of doctors had given it out. They couldn't track where it had gone. There was no obligation for the doctors who had given it to those women, specifically pregnant women, to let those women know what drug they had been given. So in a sense, they're denying the truth about these people's lives and their mother's lives. So mm -hmm. what effect did that have on these kids and their moms? The U.S. has this very unique thalidomide story. In, in the rest of the world, the news breaks, women who took thalidomide, you know, had bottles that had the drug's name written on it, they had prescriptions, they had records, they had very public conversations. By and large, there was a pretty quick knowledge of whose babies had been harmed by this drug. The United States has this really wild and different version of the story, which is that because the drug was supposedly never here, and because the doctors who had given it out had no obligation to tell women, that coupled with a very disturbing discovery in the story, which is that the doctors who had given it out to pregnant women whose babies were born with injuries effectively decided to gaslight all of these women. I mean, it's one of the most harrowing and I think telling if we talk about the broader story of how women are treated in medicine. I mean, this is a really early origin story of what we see playing out through the rest of the century. It's not just that people weren't thoroughly testing this drug for how it would affect pregnant women, but once it did clearly affect pregnant women, the doctors sort of cowered in the corner, <laughs> hoping that this would never come to light. And mostly it didn't, except for, you know, about 10, 15 years ago. I'm interested because you wrote in 1960, the drug companies had about $2.7 billion in annual sales. Now we're in like the 40s. 40 billions in annual sales. So I guess what I'm asking is why write this now? And 
how in an industry where the profits have gone through the roof, can we trust that this isn't happening still? There's still sort of thing pieces coming to light. I think there's still a lot of pieces buried. I actually didn't know how much of the thalidomide story hadn't been dusted off and looked at. But when I realized, to me, I think the role of the pharmaceutical industry in our world is a very important one to pay attention to. And pharmaceuticals have become only more a part of our daily lives. When I realized I was sort of sitting on this fossil of sorts that could tell a much broader story of how pharmaceuticals play out, I felt like for all the theoretical conversations people have about, well, what's the role of regulation? What's the role of greed? What's the problem with the profit incentive of marking something up 300%, 500%? What I felt like I had was a mass of evidence that showed how things play out in a sort of Petri dish, right? With limited oversight, profit incentive, doctors not being required. I mean, I I, I circle back to this because for me, I expected corporate greed. That wasn't shocking to me. (laughs) I was completely floored to see that I want 99% of physicians, certainly in the United States and most in Canada, who had an opportunity to tell the women to whom they'd given the drug what they'd given them did not do so. Mm. And in fact, doctors were erasing things from patient charts to get out of any possible accountability responsibility. How all these doctors basically did not meet their responsibility to their patients, protected themselves over their patients. So looking at this story and looking at how people actually act in these situations was very educational. And specifically looking at how dangerously powerful it is when a drug firm, I mean, Merrill did an excellent job in 1962 of just constantly declaring that they'd done nothing wrong. Was anybody keeping track of just how many of these children born with flippers or seal-like arms or missing ears or missing fingers or toes or even limbs entirely? Did we really know? And do we even know today how many babies were born with these deformities? And that's really the key question. So I say what's interesting to me is when I first proposed this book, I think I told my publisher that the official number for American babies harmed by thalidomide was 17. And actually only nine of those were supposed to be harmed by the unofficial clinical trials. That was the number I went into it. It was repeated everywhere. I took that at face value. And I'm, you know, a year into researching, you know, Francis Kelsey, I come across a blog one night, an American woman saying that she's a thalidomide victim and survivor, and she's trying to sort of raise money to meet other American thalidomide survivors. And my, my head just kind of explodes because I think, well, wait a second, there are only supposed to be nine. Three of those actually had died shortly after birth or were stillborn. So there's, in 1962, according to the FDA, there were about six living American victims of American thalidomide. And suddenly, Dozens of people are trying to raise money to meet each other, (laughs) you know, as thalidomide survivors. So I realized, okay, something is very wrong with this story. I connect with her and I subsequently connect with this group, which has sort of formed together as the United States thalidomide survivors. At this point, there are probably about 100 living Americans that I would estimate were affected by the drug and probably another 100 that have passed away. And that could have been shortly after birth or in the subsequent decades. But we're never going to know 
And this group has a tremendously hard time, you know, proving like, you know, in anything that would be a court of law, because there are absolutely no records. I tell one story in the book, which also kind of exploded my head, a woman named Jean Grover, who was born in a Cincinnati hospital. Cincinnati is where the drug firm Merrill was headquartered that started distributing the drug. She's about the fifth baby born in a short span of time at the Jewish hospital in Cincinnati with phocomelia, which is a condition so rare that most obstetricians will never see it in their entire practicing life. So you, you know, contemplate that being a nurse or a doctor at a hospital or even administrator, and you're on baby number five at minimum with this super rare condition and crickets, Hmm. crickets, you know, no one says to Jean's mother, this is the fifth baby. Something's wrong here in Cincinnati. We need to look into this. That's not what happens. All of the women, all of those mothers were told they'd never seen it before. What parallels are you seeing between what you wrote about and the incredible rise of fentanyl in this country? And if doctors and drug companies could get away with erasing records the way that they did in the 1950s and the 1960s, would it be in our headlines as much as it is now? You don't have an opioid crisis without doctors overprescribing. It is not just mustache twirling men behind a desk in an office somewhere. Certainly. I think we sometimes think that these scandals or things that have a tremendous body count are masterminded by one evil person. All of these stories strike me as a sort of murder on the Orient Express type crime. They don't happen without the participation of many people along the way. Mm. And sometimes those people may think that all they're doing is just sliding one piece of paper across their desk a little faster than it should go. And they don't feel a moral or ethical or medical responsibility for what the effect of all of those choices are in aggregate. The thalidomide story was very interesting and instructive because it does not happen without lots of people at every step along the way cutting corners. On the other side, it it isn't saved or stopped. Francis Kelsey was just one of the many people, doctors, journalists, bureaucrats, parents who stopped the drug just through independent action that in aggregate had a lot of power. So I think that probably these individual reviewers at the FDA Individual physicians, you know, whether it's, you know, a doctor going on a junket and, you know, not realizing that they might be a little more enthusiastic than they might have been otherwise to recommend to a patient that they take a new pill need to look at their own individual roles in these scandals because they do not happen with just one person in a company. It is Mm. not a story of just corporate wrongdoing. So how did this story play out? How does it come to an end? I looked for any scrap of paper that would explain why our Department of Justice did not bring those charges. I mean, it was it was so obvious that they had done wrong, and this was what the FDA wanted and recommended. And whatever makes note of whatever meeting happened, whatever agreement happened is gone. The company is still in business. They're a multi-billion dollar company. They make tramadol. They still make a lot of very popular medicines. They did contribute decades ago to a fund that was in part Grunenthal money and part German government money to help survivors by all accounts that was not enough and has never been enough to support the physical needs of thalidomide survivors. Merrill settled a few lawsuits. There were a small number of suits that found their way into the courts early on, but no public acknowledgement of wrongdoing. I will say to your point of where is this now? 
the really interesting piece of the story. So because the American story played out differently, it took a very long time for American thalidomide survivors to learn and understand that when their mothers told them that they'd been given an aspirin or a vitamin or a mysterious unnamed pill for morning sickness, that that was actually thalidomide. Because the story they'd received even from their own doctors was, oh, thalidomide was never in the United States. It was this weird kind of problem with vocabulary. It was never sold. Okay. No one paid for it, but it was very much here. They finally start to untangle that their mothers likely received thalidomide. They form a group. A lawsuit is brought in 2011. Hmm. Really? Yes. So the drug firms have very quickly tried to argue the statute of limitations, TikTok, it's over, right? Like we don't have to address this because so much time passed. They argue very aggressively that it was well known that thalidomide was here. All of these individuals should have figured this out and brought suit years ago. I think people should be paying more attention to it. I think it has a resonance for a lot of things that might play out for whether it's CRISPR, genetic engineering, things done in utero. Like what are our standards for demanding that people understand and know the harm that was done to them when they weren't even breathing? The United States is the only developed nation in the world where thalidomide was widely distributed that has never supported, not a penny, for any of its thalidomide survivors. And importantly, the refusal of the government to not bring criminal charges against Merrill per the FDA's investigation made it horrifically complicated for those individuals to bring lawsuits. I mean, one thing that I learned through this process is that when the government brings criminal charges, they kind of foot the bill for getting a lot of the discovery and paperwork and evidence that becomes the basis for what people then later bring in civil cases. When that's not done, you know, and you're one person in a small town and maybe at best you get to a lawyer and there's nothing to work with, right? And, and all the lawyer knows is, well, no criminal charges were ever brought against the pharmaceutical firm. What is our basis for bringing this claim? Where's the evidence to work with? The few survivors that did reach out to lawyers were snubbed. Those thalidomide babies who did survive with missing limbs or missing parts of limbs or whatever, the pictures are searing, obviously, of them. And you think, how, how have they done? How have they survived until today? I'm sure you've talked to many of them. Yeah. So they will tell stories of every job interview they've ever been on, becoming quickly aware that the person across the desk is sort of looking at a differently shaped hand, wondering what the story is and thinking maybe it's going to be too uncomfortable for everyone, you know, to contend with that. I mean, I will say it's very important to note thalidomide affected bodies and not brains. The survivors are smart, empathetic, lovely individuals. They're anyone that you might know whose mother had the bad luck of taking a pill in the first trimester. And they have experienced the world as a group. I find them the most empathetic people that I've ever dealt with. I think they are highly attuned to reading the emotional landscape of other people. They have felt an intense range of emotions, certainly if you talk their childhoods of feeling excluded and sort of being observers. These are men and women in their 60s who have families, their grandparents, they've had careers. This has not precluded them from having thriving and wonderful lives. But pain is a very important issue. If you have someone who has learned to use their body differently to accommodate for their arm or leg being differently shaped, it's what anyone would do. You'd say, if I can't hold the pencil with my hand, I'll hold it with my foot, right? However, the human body isn't designed for the joints to move in that way and be used in that way. So I would say specifically right now, they're experiencing a sort of accelerated pain of aging 
that is why I believe there should be sort of, you know, specific support for them. Their needs are not on par with people sort of normally aging. And it all traces back to this, you know, crazy moment where, uh, you know, we just, we fumbled, we dropped the ball in terms of making sure that people who should have been held accountable and people who should have been supported were taken care of. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for Jennifer Vanderbus. You're a novelist, so what made you want to write nonfiction and this story in particular? I was shocked this story had not been written. There was no master plan. I was researching Francis Kelsey. I began to realize pieces of the story had not been told. That seemed completely wrong to me. And I also felt like it was a great story with high stakes, ticking clock, great characters, it's not a novel because it's all true, but that just means I didn't have to make up the hard parts. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a book, fiction or nonfiction, that made you want to be a writer? Henry James' Portrait of a Lady. Why? I did not know that this whole world existed where you could immerse yourself in the thoughts of other people and know their secrets. Uh, that just blew my mind that you could exist as a human and someone could kind of throw back the curtain and let you actually live inside another person's mysterious inner life. You've written both novels and nonfiction. Is there one that you find more satisfying and why? In this particular moment, I think I find nonfiction more satisfying as a finished product. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot harder when you're doing it because the level of accountability and frankly, fear. I mean, these are, I'm writing about pharmaceutical companies that still exist and make billions of dollars, right? There's no room for error. I'm writing about people who've lived this experience and need to be written about accurately and respectfully and empathetically. The stakes were very high. I grumbled a lot through the process, but now that it's out and done, I feel like it can do things in the world that fiction can't. Finally, Jennifer, since you have written fiction, you've written nonfiction. You know the perils and the difficulties of both. Where do you go next? Where do I go next? Good question. I think I am 
interested in nonfiction, the part of this process that was the most interesting to me and probably the least stressful was actually getting to know the thalidomide survivors and really immersing myself in the life experiences of other people who were not fictional characters, but real. I found that very interesting. I think perhaps there's a project, you know, on the horizon in the nonfiction space that would be less archival. I think I, I do not need to ever submit another FOIA request to the FDA. I've, I've done enough. Um, I think the National Archives, I think I'm on their do not let her in list. Um, but uh, I, I would absolutely love to develop that special trust and relationship with sources, I think, is a really unique experience as a writer. Jennifer Vanderbess, it is an amazing story. It's an amazing story in that I think the popular thought is, for those who even know of thalidomide, that it was solved because the FDA didn't approve the drug. But it's certainly worth new reporting that this drug was all over the place in the early 1960s. Thank you for being with us. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Our conversation with Jennifer Vanderbus, one of the things that really stays with me after this book is finished is how difficult it would be not just to have to deal with the repercussions of any disabilities or mental anguish caused by this medicine, but also essentially to say, hey, what happened to me? And the government saying, we don't know, but you don't exist. It was never approved here. Right. That adds an extra layer of trauma to the victims of thalidomide in this country. Yeah. Yeah. The government saying, hey, it's not our fault. You know, we, God bless Frances Kelsey, she's blocked the official approval of the drug, but that doesn't answer the question. And that's really where Jennifer's original reporting comes in, because she went back and found just how widely disseminated this drug was, even though it had not been officially approved in the United States. And it was even more widely disseminated in Europe. It's a great object lesson, a very good book, Wonder Drug, Jennifer Vanderbess. Came out in June in fine bookstores everywhere. We recommend that you pick it up. Anyway, that's the show for this week. We want to remind you who is responsible for this program, who puts it together. Kate and I like to think we do it all by ourselves with no help, but darn if there aren't others. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.